BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Hi, this is Newt. First, I want to wish you and your family a wonderful holiday week and a happy new year. My team who helps me with this podcast is taking some well-deserved time off during the holidays. So instead of producing new episodes of Newt's World this week, we've decided to go back into the archive and air several of the GoPack tapes I made in the late 80s and early 90s. I've heard from many of you over the years who remember these tapes, and many of you took my advice and ran for office. And for those of you who are too young to remember what the GoPack tapes are, let me give you a little background. In the late 1980s, the Republicans in the House had been in the minority for almost four decades. And in fact, they didn't have enough ideas, enough energy, enough focus. And so we had to go out and recruit a new generation of leaders and recruit people and give them new ideas, give them new solutions, and talk about the nature of how politics was changing with the rise of talk radio and all the other things that were going on. The way we did that is at GOPAC, we sent out tapes, literally old-fashioned cassette tapes you wouldn't use anymore today. And people got these tapes, put them in their car, and drove around because we'd figured out that candidates spend a huge amount of time in cars going from event to event. And so we gave them something to listen to while they were campaigning. At its peak, the GOPAC tape program was listened to by 75,000 people. Speaker John Boehner listened to the GOPAC tapes. The governor of New York listened to the GOPAC tapes. Candidate after candidate came to me and said, you know, it was listening to the GOPAC tapes that convinced me to run. These GOPAC tapes are a key part of the work Joe Gaylord and I did for some 16 years while we developed the program, grew the party, and created the opportunity to have a genuine majority. And that's why we're writing a book, which will come out next summer, called March to the Majority, explaining how the Republican Party won after 40 years with the contract with America and became a majority for the first time in four decades. And it's available now for pre-order at Amazon. So I think you'll find this a very interesting experience. I hope you'll find these tapes remind you both of some key lessons about government and politics, but also give you a flavor of how we ultimately created the first Republican House majority in 40 years. 
Thank you to the University of West Georgia, Ingram Library Special Collections, and specifically the Catherine and Jeff Breedlove Political Collection. They provided us with digital copies of the GoPack tapes. You can learn more about the GoPack tapes on our show page at newtsworld.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when, against all odds, we balance the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. I'm Lisa Nelson, Executive Director of GOPAC. Welcome to the 62% Majority, building our coalition for the new century, the latest in GOPAC's audio training series. We share a vision that by combining the wisdom of the Founding Fathers with the opportunities of the information age and the world market, we can help every person exercise their creator-endowed right to pursue happiness that will in turn lead to freedom, prosperity, and safety everywhere. If we are to reach this vision of a freer, more prosperous, and safer world, Republicans must expand dramatically our electoral coalition. In this tape, House Speaker Newt Gingrich and others will outline for you visions, strategies, projects, and tactics that should be employed to build the 62% majority coalition necessary in the next century to enact our programs and change the world. You've seen what these young people have managed to accomplish so far. You're here tonight because you have faith in them that they will be achievers. You've assisted them in helping them make their dreams come true. You've given them a precious opportunity to now have the tools to exercise their creator-endowed right to pursue happiness. In your eyes, those of you here tonight, there is no black or white or any other color. 
there is only a genuine need and the possibility to offer an opportunity. What you are doing is uniquely American in more ways than you may realize. When we look around this room and we see children of many, many hues, we learn, frankly, that it is the common bonds of experience which truly bring us together. These bonds have as much influence on our lives, our successes, and our ultimate failures or futures than anything that is as ultimately superficial as race. Consider the experience of the orphan, whether because of war, famine, accident, irresponsibility, or illness, a child is suddenly alone in the world. The obstacles that child has to overcome and the opportunities that organizations such as the Orphan Foundation provide for that child, those experiences shape each child in a particular way. And so one orphan, black, white, Asian, Muslim, Christian, or whatever combination of those characteristics you can imagine, can look to another and say, yes, I've been down the same road that you've traveled. And regardless of how you may look or how you may worship, I can see that you and I share the same experience. This is a particularly apt metaphor for America writ large. America is a nation of immigrants. And in certain ways, the experience of the immigrant and the experience of the orphan mirror one another. We have in America people who have, for various reasons, come to America for a better opportunity. You know, before there was a nation called the United States, pilgrims fleeing religious persecution landed in a place they called the New World. In the 1800s, the Irish came to these shores fleeing a famine which had devastated their country. As recently as the 1970s, Vietnamese fled a homeland wounded by decades of war. These and so many others saw hope and opportunity in America. They came here for a chance to succeed. They came, made the, the conscious decision to become part of a new family, to become Americans. And you all know, here in Washington, D.C., if you've caught a cab at National Airport, that the experience of new immigrants from virtually everywhere continues. And it would be a fascinating study to take 10 cabs in a row and find out how many countries you just had a chance to learn about on your way into the city. And that's the genius of this country. Because, you know, becoming an American is a unique experience which comes with certain responsibilities, certain habits that one has to absorb, and that we have to accept to successfully finish the process of Americanization. An American is not American the way French live in France or Germans the way Germans are. You can live either of those in either of those countries, and some of you may have, for years, and you never become French or German. You always remain a foreigner who happens to be living in France or Germany. I think one of the reasons Tiger Woods has had such a big impact is because he is an American. He defines himself as an American. And I think we need to be prepared to say, the truth is, we want all Americans to be, quite simply, 
American. That doesn't deprive anyone of the right to further define their heritage. I go to celebrations such as the Greek festival in my district every year. It doesn't deprive us of the right to have ethnic pride, to have some sense of our origins. But it is wrong for some Americans to begin creating subgroups to which they have a higher loyalty than to America at large. The genius of America has always been its ability to draw people from everywhere and to give all of them an opportunity to pursue happiness in a way that no other society has been able to manage. That is a particularly useful way of discussing the question of race, which I raised at the beginning of the year when I was reelected speaker and which the president addressed this past weekend in California. The question of race is at the heart of America's darkest moments, slavery, the Civil War, segregation. And yet dealing with it in the public sphere also produced two of our most brilliant and influential leaders, Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. Such has been the tragedy and triumph of race in America. As W.E.B. Du Bois observed, the 20th century has in some ways been defined by the color line. As we move into a new century, we have to look at what has worked when it comes to race, what hasn't, and what lessons we should learn. Because as the old adage goes, there is no surer sign of insanity than doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Looking to the new, rather than repeating a failed pattern, is a very American truth. To those who doubt whether America holds promise, even in the most hostile of circumstances, we need only turn to the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave. That was the title of his autobiography. While the question of a federal apology for slavery can be discussed by reasonable people of all persuasions, let us not forget someone like Douglas, who didn't wait for an apology. He allowed bonds, neither physical nor mental, to prevent him in one lifetime to go from being a slave to becoming an advisor to the President of the United States. That is quintessentially an American story. That is a story like many others in this unique nation. It stands as one of many historic lessons which all Americans can benefit from learning. Slavery was a terrible period in this country's existence, one which we as a country must never forget. That's why I was glad that J.C. Watts introduced his Juneteenth resolution observing the day many African Americans celebrate as the traditional end of slavery. The more Americans learn about America, the triumphs and tragedies, the more we mature as a nation. But while Americans must respect the past, part of being an American is about looking forward. The scholarships being awarded here tonight are a good place to continue the dialogue on race because they are awards of pure achievement, pure merit rewarding individuals for their superior work as individuals. They're not being granted because somebody felt sorry for you or thought you needed assistance because you were a particular race or gender. You're being rewarded for your hard work as individuals. That is the way we must approach the issue of opportunity. We will not be successful 
and moving our society forward if we submerge individuals into groups. Unfortunately, government policy has concentrated on groupings over the last 30 years. The results of the group think approach are in, and they have proven tragic. Let me draw a distinction. I was an army brat. I was born in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I grew up in the United States Army when it was an integrated institution. I went to the South as a teenager, and I was in Columbus, Georgia when there was still legal segregation. I first encountered it when I was 16 years old. Segregation was the legal imposition by the state of a set of unfair rules. Ending segregation was an inherently political fight. It made perfect sense for people who wanted to advance the cause of freedom and end government-imposed segregation to focus on politics and government. Since the rules of segregation were focused on a specific group, it made sense that the focus was on removing the impediments at the group level. Having ended segregation, however, the next struggle, frankly, is and has been economic and educational achievement. Government is a peculiarly ineffective institution in these areas. This is a lesson we now tell the Chinese, we tell the Russians, we say everywhere around the planet. Centralized, bureaucratic, command and control systems don't work. Well, guess what? They don't work very well in the inner cities of Washington, New York, or Detroit either. And they have proven tragically not to work on American Indian reservations. We need to treat individuals as individuals. And we need to address discrete problems for the problems they are and not presume them to be part of an intractable racial issue which will never be torn out. Consider the difference. If you say to somebody, you'll never rise because you're part of some problem we can't solve, why try? If you say to somebody, tell me what your need is. You don't know how to do math, we'll get you a tutor. You've never worked before, we'll find you a job. You don't know how to get a house, we'll take you to Habitat for Humanity. It's a totally different model of how we try to solve problems. We need to consider, for example, education. Following the removal of racial quotas in the University of California system, Berkeley experienced a precipitous drop in accepted black students for their fall classes. The old way of thinking assumes this to be a racial problem that must be addressed in a race-specific manner. That is exactly the wrong kind of thinking. If, in fact, enough young people are not being educated well enough to get into Berkeley, the focus should be on what's wrong with the schools that are producing them and how can we improve those schools. And if the need is for more tutoring and if the need is for better education, if the need is for a way to dramatically overhaul the schools, then let's overhaul the schools. None of that involves race. Similarly, if there are not enough young blacks in particular, younger Hispanics to a less extent, going out and creating small businesses, then let's look at what are the inhibitors to creating small businesses. All of the set-asides in the world will not change Anacostia or other pockets of poverty. We have to have a profound, fundamental rethinking of the assumptions that have failed for 30 years. As you look at the success of West Indians, first-generation immigrants, or of Koreans, 
or you look at the success, for that matter, of people who have come here from Africa in the last 30 years, the fact is a surprising number of people of color rise surprisingly rapidly. And by rising, I mean get wealthier, buy property, have freedom, and go on nice vacations. And the most obvious famous example is the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs. They rise very rapidly. They rise because they have the right habits, skills, and networking ability. But if you trap people into public housing with anti-work and anti-achievement regulations, send them to schools that fail, teach them a set of habits about not working or saving, create an environment where no one near them gets up on Monday to go to a job, have nobody in the neighborhood who opens a small business, it should not shock you that we end up with cycles of despair which repeat for generations. What we've done with the best of intentions is artificially create, both on Indian reservations and in the inner city, zones of despair and depression where people have no hope. So we need to talk about a very different model. The President's Commission needs to begin with this new, more powerful approach. In America, everyone is an individual. Everyone in America has the creator-endowed right to pursue happiness. In America, we pragmatically solve problems by asking, why isn't this happening? For example, why weren't children learning in a particular neighborhood? Then systematically break the problem into components and solve it. In many cases, a solution will require a replacement rather than a repair. That's why we developed a replacement for the failed welfare system. You couldn't repair the old welfare system of passivity and lifetime dependency. It had to be replaced with a different model that emphasized training, work, and self-help. I would argue the same is true with much of the public housing rules. You can't repair them. You have got to replace them with a different model. If you do create a replacement system at a practical level, what behaviors are you trying to encourage among large numbers of people? You want to make it easy to open a small business. Most big cities make it hard. Hernando de Soto, 15 years ago, wrote The Other Path. It is based on anti-job rules in Lima, Peru. It applies as well to Washington, Atlanta, Miami, New York, Los Angeles, and virtually all large American cities. And I would say, given our host tonight, compare the difficulties in Iowa or South Dakota of creating a new corporation with the difficulties in Washington, D.C., New York City, Los Angeles, or Atlanta, and you will understand that it is dramatically cheaper and dramatically easier to not be in the very cities where we have the largest centers of poverty. So the very place we want more business, we're going to face this problem of local anti-job taxes and rules. I'm the leading advocate for tax breaks for Washington, D.C. We have nearly $580 million in tax breaks over the next 10 years, in the tax bill for our nation's capital. We have fought hard to protect these tax breaks. Yet DC's city taxes are one-third higher than the surrounding counties. Now it's not hard for any student of Adam Smith to figure out why, if you are a rational small business person, you go to Prince George's County. It is safer, it is cheaper, and the local government doesn't make it so difficult for the entrepreneur to succeed. It doesn't matter how many quotas you have. If you're not willing to confront the central need to reform and replace the systems that have failed, they will continue to fail. I would hope the President's Commission 
will have the moral courage to erase the assumption that we are a group society. If they will look to Canada right now, they will see profound reasons for Americans to want to avoid our decaying into a series of groups. I hope this commission will decide that its goal must be to have every American succeed as an individual within the framework of their creator-endowed rights. We must focus on individuals and their personal, educational, and economic achievements. Obsessing on race will not allow us to move beyond race. We must follow the example of the Orphan Foundation and recognize specific needs and provide principles that will allow Americans of all backgrounds to open the doors of opportunity. We have to start with the development of a solid foundation with an economic and social pillar which will allow us to build a true opportunity society. We must emphasize continuing economic growth with low inflation and rising take-home pay. Within this economic growth, we must emphasize creating opportunities for minorities to create new small businesses. Our goal should be to encourage at least a three-fold growth in black-owned small businesses over the next few years. This will require reductions in taxation, litigation, and regulation to make it dramatically easier to launch small businesses. It will also require an aggressive outreach program to encourage minority individuals to create their own businesses as an alternative to working for others. In addition to expanded economic opportunity, we should insist on solving other challenges which affect all Americans, but bear particularly harshly on minority populations. Imagine that it is January 1st, 2001, the first day of a new century and a new millennium. It is a Monday morning. Imagine waking up in an America that is virtually drug-free, in which practically every child is learning at their best rate, and in which almost all children were born into or adopted into families that could nurture and raise them. I am not describing a utopia. This is the America I went to high school in in 1960. Drug use was marginal. There was an expectation you could read the diploma before they gave it to you. Self-esteem was earned, not given. Young males knew that fatherhood was a responsibility, not just a biological side effect of hedonism. All of America will be better off if we create a drug-free, learning-oriented America of children growing up in families. Minority Americans in general, and black Americans in particular, would find their lives dramatically improved by these changes. Stopping drug addiction, drug-related violence, and drug-generated wealth will do more to improve the lives of young blacks and the prospects of poor neighborhoods than all of the quotas and set-asides combined. When neighborhoods are drug-free and crime-free, businesses will return, jobs will reappear, and economic opportunity will be reestablished. True learning is infinitely more powerful than social promotion combined with so quotas and set-asides. Every child of every background in every neighborhood deserves their full rights to pursue happiness as their creator, creator endowed them. Recently, I attended an eighth grade graduation at St. Augustine Private School here in Washington. 98% of the private school children in Washington, D.C. will graduate. The public schools, which cost three to four times as much, 
will graduate less than half as many of their entering children. Saving the children who are dropping out requires new approaches, not new quotas. We know we can dramatically reduce every sing we can dramatically reduce single teenage pregnancy because it is being reduced. Kay Granger, former mayor of Fort Worth and now a freshman member of Congress, worked in a YWCA program for 800 at-risk teenage girls. Statistically, 70% should have become pregnant. The program taught these young girls ambition, integrity, and motivation. Instead of 560 girls becoming pregnant, the statistical probability, two, became pregnant. It's proof that we can break the cycles of dependency and despair in our poor neighborhoods. Notice, this is not a proposal for a massive new government program. If centralized bureaucracies in Washington could have stopped drugs, guaranteed learning, and ended single teen pregnancy, the job would have been done. We have created the bureaucracy and spent the money. It was just the wrong model. Yet, America is a great country filled with good people. Tocqueville pointed out in the 1840s that volunteerism, local leadership, and faith-based charities were the unique attributes that gave America its dynamic character. Marvin Olasky recaptured these principles of American success in his 1994 book, The Tragedy of American Compassion. Instead of focusing on broad, sweeping generalizations about race, the President's Commission needs to focus on practical, doable, immediate action steps that can solve America's problems. If Americans get busy enough working together to achieve real goals, racism will recede. Perspiration and teamwork will dissolve racism faster than therapy and dialogue. I'm sure many of you saw the Bulls Jazz Championship game last week. In the closing moments when Michael Jordan looked to find an open man for a winning shot, he didn't look for the closest black player. He looked for the nearest Chicago jersey. That happened to be Steve Kerr, who is white. This is the example for society to follow. A group of individuals so focused on a common goal of winning that they don't have time to worry about what color the other guy is. I was in Kentucky Monday with former President Jimmy Carter, building houses for Habitat. And I can tell you, as we were out there in the Kentucky sun in Appalachia, I didn't notice who was holding the ladder or who handed me a hammer or who had the nails. I wasn't paying attention to whether it was a man or a woman or what color they were. I just knew we were all sweating and working and trying to get it done together. And we went to lunch, there was a sense of being one team focused on one mission, helping each other, that was dissolving any possible antagonisms of our ethnic or other pasts. I'll also remind everyone here and those watching on C-SPAN that Michael Jordan tragically lost his father a few years ago. Steve Kerr, while a college freshman, lost his father to Middle East violence. They are good examples of overcoming adversity and triumphing in the face of difficulty. We thank the President for wishing to continue the dialogue on race last weekend, but frankly, there's been a lot of talk on this issue and very little action of the sort which will dramatically change people's lives. Let me now suggest 10 practical steps which started today can build a better America and in the process close the racial divide. First, learning. 
We must create better opportunities for all children to learn by breaking the stranglehold of the teachers' unions and giving people, giving parents, the financial opportunity to choose the public, private, or parochial school that is best for their children, as outlined in Majority Leader Army's Educational Opportunity Scholarships for District of Columbia students. Second, small business. We must set a goal of tripling the number of minority-owned small businesses by bringing successful small business leaders together to identify and then eliminate the government-imposed barriers to entrepreneurship. Third, urban renewal. We must create 100 renewal communities in impoverished areas through targeted pro-growth tax benefits, regulatory relief, low-income scholarships, savings accounts, brownfields cleanup, and home ownership opportunities as outlined in J.C. Watts and Jim Talent's American Community Renewal Act. Fourth, civil rights. The Equal, Oppor the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission should clear its existing backlog of discrimination cases by enforcing existing civil rights laws rather than trying to create new ones by regulatory decree. Fifth, equal opportunity. We must make America a country with equal opportunity for all and special privilege for none by treating all individuals as equals before the law and doing away with quotas, preferences, and set-asides of government contracts, hiring, and university admi admissions as outlined in the Kennedy-McConnell-Hatch Civil Rights Act of 1997. Sixth, racial classification. We must break down rigid racial classifications. A first step could be to add a multiracial category to the census and other government forms to begin to phase out the outdated, divisive, and rigid classification of Americans as blacks or whites or other single races. Ultimately, our goal is to have one classification American, and I might add as a constituent of mine who on behalf of her children has been a primary leader in arguing that her children deserve the right to recognize that they come from a multiracial background. Seventh, home ownership. We must ease the path toward home ownership by giving local communities and local housing authorities the flexibility and authority to more effectively and more efficiently house low-income Americans as outlined in the Housing Opportunity and Responsibility Act. We must also expand faith-based charities such as Habitat for Humanity, which grow families as well as build homes. Eighth, violent crime. We must make our cities safe and secure places to live and work through community placing, tougher sentences for violent criminals, and innovative anti-crime programs as outlined in the Juvenile Crime Control Act of 1997. We must also dramatically expand the community-based anti-drug coalition efforts and insist on a victory plan for the war on drugs. Ninth, economic growth. We must expand economic opportunity for all Americans by promoting continued economic growth with low inflation and rising take-home pay through tax cuts, tax simplification, litigation reform, less regulation, and overhaul of the bur government burden on small business. After all, if welfare to work is to be successful, work has to be available for those leaving welfare. And 10th, welfare reform. We must take the next step in welfare reform by fostering and promoting innovative local job training, welfare to work, and entry-level employment programs to move welfare recipients into the workforce as outlined in the Personal Responsibility Act of 1996 and the welfare to work initiatives of Governor George Bush of Texas and others. These 10 steps are examples of the kind of practical, down-to-earth, 
problem-solving efforts which will improve the lives of all Americans, but have an especially important and dramatic impact on the lives of poor Americans and minority communities. I hope the President's Commission will establish a goal of practical reforms and practical changes and will hold hearings designed to elicit pragmatic, down-to-earth proposals for real change. That commission would do well to start right here with the Orphan Foundation. This is a uniquely American institution. In your generosity of spirit, in your inner strength, and in your boundless optimism. But most of all, you are uniquely American because in giving these and many other young people the rarest of treasures, a sense of hope, a sense of place, and a sense of possibility, you are in fact helping show them what it means to be citizens and part of the American family. And those are the greatest gifts of all. You're part of a worldwide movement of freedom and faith you are all making our jobs a little bit easier. I thank the Foundation for its work. I salute this year's scholarship winners, and I thank you for allowing me to join you on this rare and particular evening. Thank you very, very much. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in legacy precious metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when, against all odds, we balanced the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history, and now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043, or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Billy Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billy's vocals. It was automatic art. You know, I had to, like, choose a more challenging route than just, like, da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like, it could have been, like, easier. And a lot of people have asked me, like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and, like, so simple? And what else was it going to... Like, that's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. I'd like for you to all kind of travel with me into the future, if you would, to the year 2004. And what has happened between now, on this date, in 1997, and 2004, politically, to the country? And if you travel with me and can envision that a Republican president has just been reelected, 
that there are more than 60 Republican United States Senators. There is a stable Republican majority of 265 to 270 Republican members of Congress. That at least 35 of our 50 governors are still Republican. And that the GOP controls 70% of all legislative seats in America. A majority of the city halls in America are under Republican control, and two-thirds of all county courthouses are dominated by Republicans. That's the vision that this party could hope to achieve between now and 2004. In other words, how do we translate the conservative majority in America to the Republican governing majority all across this country, from coast to coast and from north to south. I think that when you are envisioning this kind of project and thinking about this kind of political work, it's very helpful when you say, if this is our result, how is it that we got there? And so we start with, in the planning model, the vision, strategies, projects, and tactics model. We start with the vision of if this is, if we have two-thirds of all of the people in the country identify with us as Republicans, who are they? Who are they? When asked of pollsters and asked of, of political scientists and said, and said, if you wanted to recreate, essentially, a governing majority as strong as the Roosevelt coalition was, what would those people look like and what would they be like? And the truth is they would be middle-class American taxpayers. They would be family members, and they would be small business women and men all across the country. Now, if you think about that as the, as the broad vision of what the majority is, the question that we have to ask ourselves is how are we going to get there? Not what policies are we going to change, not what values are we going to exchange, but how is it that we are going to make sure that a comfortable majority of Americans are indeed comfortable with our party and where we're going and where we're leading. I think that it's interesting to take a look at America as it exists right now. The country is, is actually divided into five different regions, and they are decidedly different in political outlook and political persuasion. The, the first, the one that dominates the news media, is New England and the Metroliner Corridor that exists from New York to Washington and includes most of Maryland, all of Delaware, uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and on up, on up north. That, that's about 16% of the voters in the country. Second is the, is the region from, from Virginia to Florida, which is the South Atlantic coast. The third is the great Mississippi Valley that stretches from northwestern upstate New York to Minnesota, down as far south as, uh, uh, as Alabama and Louisiana, Mississippi and Louisiana. The third is the interior that stretches from Texas to the Canadian border and includes all of what was once known as the Great American Desert. And the fifth region is the Pacific Rim, 
that is California, Oregon, Washington, and stretches from the coast to the mountains in most of those states. Now the great, the, each one of them constitutes about a sixth of the American population except for the Mississippi Valley, which is about 30%. And if you think about the country in that way, if people talk about the shocking loss of Republican congressmen in New England, and truly there are only four of 19, but no one mentions that in the Rocky Mountain states and in the, in, in, in the Great Plains that there are 20 Republican congressmen and only four Democrats because it's not part of the, of, of the media elite and it's not part of the understanding somebody has. Or that if you look at just the Great Plains alone from Oklahoma to North Dakota that there are 13 Republican congressmen and only one Democrat. I mean, it's an interesting way in th the way that people think about the country itself and what it is that, that, that we're doing politically. There are a great number of issues that unite us as a party, and there are a great number of issues uh, that, we can, that we can utilize to expand the majority that we have. We're going to talk about some of those this morning. We're going to talk about... Uh, and we're going to discuss various ways of reaching out and talking to constituencies that are not normally considered Republican, that are not normally part of the natural majority uh, th that we have. Uh, we have, I think, a very, as I, as I said earlier, distinguished panel to talk about this. First, we have Ken Blackwell, who is the state treasurer of uh, Ohio. Uh, who has a distinguished background uh, in both the academic and political and, and business and governmental worlds. Um, I asked him if I could announce his candidacy for governor of Ohio here this morning, and he, and he said that I could do that, but, it would, but I probably shouldn't, but he may. Uh, so, and we're delighted, Ken, that you could be with us. We also have Dylan Glenn, uh, who is with uh, Jensen and Company, who is a communications specialist, former, uh, uh, for, formerly with the, uh, in, the, in the Bush administration. We have Barbara Ledeen, uh, who is uh, the executive director of the Women's Independent Forum, a forum that was started about three years ago uh, and speaks, uh, speaks to uh, issues facing uh, American women. Uh, and, and we also have Tony Likens, uh, who has uh, both uh, a, a background in the political world at the RNC and two different stints and managing campaigns uh, in uh, the administration of government itself. Uh, the chief of staff for Congressman Barbara Vukanovich of Nevada and also very active in organizing and working uh, with conservative Catholic voters. And if you look at, at the array that we have presented here for this morning, we're talking about women, the majority of people in America. We're talking about Catholics, the largest religious group in America. We're talking about minorities, which is a genuine and for real uh, outreach and communications program. I think you will find this panel both interesting and stimulating. What we're going to do is to move through just as they are in the order of the program for each to speak, and then we'll take questions after that. So I'm delighted at this point to turn over the program to Ken Blackwell, the State Treasurer of Ohio.
Thank you, Joe. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm always pleased when I'm asked to provide perspective to such uh, an august group. I'm always surprised because I'm from Cincinnati, and those of you who don't get the gist of, of that comment, let me just tell you what the great literary giant Mark Twain said about Cincinnati. After his third visit, he was asked by a young reporter on his way out of town what he thought about the Queen City of the Midwest. He said, son, if I heard the world was ending tomorrow, I would get to Cincinnati as fast as I could because things happened there 10 years after they happened in the rest of the world. <laughs> so we're pretty sure-footed <laughs> and conservative. And yes, I am running for governor of the state of Ohio. There are two ways to broaden the base within the African-American and non-traditional Republican communities over the long haul. First is to elect African-Americans to office under the GOP banner. And second is to develop and maintain a consistent, coherent communications program targeted to those communities. These are not new ideas. They have been retested and reconfirmed time and time again. Our problem as a party has been the lack of commitment to stick with a long-term plan and a lack of understanding by many Republican operatives of the approaches necessary to attract these voters. We get sidetracked easily by the immediacy of the next election and the need to put together a winning coalition for today's campaign versus a long-term coalition to assure control of the governing apparatus for generations. The, this drains our resources and our attention from our often stated but seldom implemented plans for outreach and base broadening. If we are to be successful, we need to make our efforts an integral part of our party's permanent operating overhead as well as its permanent rhetoric. Considerations on electing African Americans, if this is a priority, we as a party may have to do things a little differently at first. Remember, if this is a priority, it deserves attention and resources. Attention and resources you would apply to any other political objective. This cannot succeed if we continue the ineffective and frankly condescending approach of keeping these efforts in an auxiliary status. This is a path that we have gone down for decades. It is totally ineffective. I grew up in an urban context, and so I want to just tell you a brief story as to why we cannot continue to go down that path. And so as state treasurer, I put a lot of time against working with farmers because I absolutely knew very little about the importance 
of agriculture to our state and our state's character. So I was with a farmer and he told me this story. He said he had a young farmhand that came to work one morning and he noticed as he walked through the barnyard door that his right ear was badly singed. And he asked him what happened. And as the young man started to talk to him, he understood or he noticed that his left ear was also badly singed. He said, Farmer Jim, you know that my wife works down at the diner right down the road and she has this bad habit of getting up every morning and ironing her uniform on the bed. <laughs> this morning, she was ironing her uniform, forgot to unplug it, put the iron on the nightstand. Telephone rang, I reached over, thought I was grabbing the phone, put the iron to my ear. Farmer Jim said, son, I feel your pain. He said, but uh, that explains your right ear. What happened to your left ear? He said, well, the fool called back. <laughs> I would just suggest, ladies and gentlemen, that we, in fact, cannot be burned again by going down that errant path. <clears throat> so I would suggest that we avoid tokenism. If blacks are recruited, do so for a race that matters to you and the party. Just having a black on the ticket does absolutely no good. Black candidates' basic philosophy should be no different from other candidates being considered for the ticket. If the district or election area will have a substantial uh, black population, it is important that GOP candidates have roots in and are recognized by that community. There is little to no reason to run a black Republican in a heavily black area if that individual is not already identified with the community. You will be just as well off to run a white candidate. In your early attempts to elect blacks, avoid primaries if possible. If not possible, be prepared to get resources to the candidate to get the job done. It is counterproductive in the long run to recruit a black or non-traditional Republican to run and then fail to get them through the primary. The opinion in the community will be that you have abandoned the person. Fair or not, this will be the perception and it will make it harder for the party the next time around. Don't make promises that you are not prepared to keep. Considerations on long-term activity, ladies and gentlemen, would include communication, presence, and campaign activity by non-black GOP candidates. First, presence in the community. There needs to be that presence and it needs to be consistent over time. This means not just at election time, but throughout the year. It does not have to be a daily or weekly presence, but consistent and in conjunction with key activities. Secondly, you want to avoid, and this is in conjunction with the presence, the wrap of only coming around at election time. 
understand the importance of family reunions and holidays and other activities in the community. Celebrate African American History Month uh, with a true appreciation for the contributions that African Americans have made to the freedom and the character of this country. Communication. Communication in the African American community tends to be with an emphasis on the verbal over the print. That means that while newspapers are important and crucial in spreading the word in the African American community, radio is the better and the preferred medium. Radio is better than mail as a message delivery system. Despite the persistent fear of GOP operatives that it is dangerous to go on black radio or radio formatted and directed towards black audiences for fear of backlash, the truth is that there is very little crossover, but more importantly, the messages that you are advocating in the African-American community are no different than the messages that you should be advocating in the mainstream media. It is merely, perhaps, difference in tone and presentation, but I underline not content. There, who, there are Republicans who understand a great deal about this approach, and I would make sure that we tap all of our resources throughout the party at the local, state, and national level. It is important that we set concrete objectives for attainment. There's no reason why at the national level in the year 2000, we should not get 25% of the African-American vote. Ladies and gentlemen, I have consistently been a standard bearer for conservative, underlying conservative Republican agendas. And in 1994, I got close to 40% of the African-American vote. George Voinovich, in our, the governor of our great state, got 40% of the African-American vote. There is no reason why conservative Republicans articulating a line that is unquestionably sincere cannot effectively carry 25 to 40% and one day over 50% of the African American vote. <clears throat> I would close by, by telling you to remember the three R's in our base broadening efforts. First is recognition. You earn recognition within the African-American community, non-traditional Republican communities, just as we have earned the respect in mainstream America. The other one is respect. And you get respect by giving respect. And the third is repetition. You just do it and do it and do it. If we, in fact, persist, if, in fact, we are sincere, we, in fact, will get the job done. Thank you very much.
Good morning. I'm Dylan Glenn. Uh, Joe, thanks for that introduction. And uh, I just want to say, Shell, uh, on behalf of, uh, I mean, actually, you've done a wonderful job on behalf of GOPAC in your new tenure. I think it was my late great, great friend, uh, Lee Atwood, who coined the phrase Big Tent. And uh, certainly that was a wonderful tent we had an opportunity to be in last night on behalf of Gay Gaines. And listen, I just want to say, Gay, uh, you've done a wonderful job with GOPAC in changing America. And thank you for all the work that you've done. I know we're running a little behind schedule, so I'll be brief, but I just want to say, uh, Ken, you, you alluded to this. If there's one thing that's been established during my lifetime and arguably the lifetime of GOPAC, it's that times they are changing. I think Jane Kirkpatrick spoke about this last night. The dramatic collapse of communism removed for the Republican policy, I mean, removed for Republicans the uh, foreign policy as an issue and probably caught us off guard and probably cost us two presidential elections. I think we simply weren't ready uh, for the dynamics that that brought about to what moved voters. A major factor, though, as we enter into the next few decades will be the growing strength of racial minorities in this country. We cannot ignore the browning, quote unquote, of America with more blacks, more Hispanics, more Asians participating uh, in the voting uh, elections to come. We as Republicans must be ready for that certainty. And of course, that subject is what we're here discussing today. 32 years ago, Lyndon Johnson waged his trillion dollar war on poverty. Uh, and one group today is clearly worse off than it was then, and that's black America. I think when Speaker Gingrich discusses the plight of American youth, uh, he's really speaking disproportionately about the uh, problems facing the children of black America. Uh, those killed in gang fights at age 12, those having babies at age 14, those at 18 getting diplomas that they can't read. And yet this legacy of the Democratic Party continues. Uh, it appears that they only have two interests when it comes to black American, America, rather, one, uh, keeping blacks, uh, maintain the status quo uh, with a permanent underclass, and two, keeping them voting the straight Democratic ticket. Uh, tragically, I think they've been successful on both counts. Uh, there are those who say that the only way to compete is trying to out-liberal the libs, if you will. A little more social spending here, a little social engineering there. Uh, that doesn't work, my friends. I think if history's taught us anything, those ideas are simply outdated and wrong. So why would we even try? I think there's a time when ideas triumph over rhetoric, when good defeats evil, and Republicans, uh, I think that time is approaching. Let me give you one just very clear example of this. Uh, the difference between Republicans and Democrats, if you will. In the last Congress, Republicans tried to institute a voucher program a program which would have allowed children of the poorest neighborhoods uh, to obtain a quality education. The speaker had gone to the schools, walked through the communities, and met with the parents and children, and proposed a minuscule amount of money, a $15 million program, which would have, as a pilot, would have allowed some of our 1,000 children, rather, in the district uh, a new chance at life. This innovative program was the first opportunity, the best hope that these kids ever had. This was a dream of a lifetime, and the Democrats killed that dream. The elitist Democrats in the United States Senate, some who don't even know what a public school looks like and certainly wouldn't consider sending their kids to one, filibustered that piece of legislation to death. Uh, they denied our poorest, our most vulnerable, our most at risk children in Washington, D.C., the real opportunity to get away from terrible schools and risk that they risk their lives to attend. And why? I think because it was opposed by the teachers union, uh, which gave millions of dollars to Democrats in 1996 and basically because it threatened the elitist uh, views who, of who could and who should succeed in, uh, in life. So the children of Washington, D.C. and the ghettos are still condemned to inferior education. 
lives of virtual hopelessness. This is the most blatant example of liberal hypocrisy, liberal dishonesty, and yes, I believe liberal evil. It is the power of ideas, not rhetoric, not style, that will change America and will make the Republican Party the permanent majority in this country as we move into the 21st century. <clears throat> the keepers of the welfare state, the Democrats, have not had a new idea since I was born. They're so bereft they can't even put together a budget to send to Congress. But they are the masters of demagoguery. Let's pit race against race, men against women, uh, you know, young against old, and let's blame it all on the Republicans, especially Newt Gingrich. Uh, I'm very proud to be from Georgia. I see some of my friends from Georgia in the audience, and I'm proud to say that we, are, uh, we have two of the greatest leaders in this country in Newt Gingrich and Clarence Thomas. I want to say again that it is ideas and the will to implement them that will make Republicans the permanent majority in this country. It's not TV ads, coalition building, fundraising, nor even the manifold sins of uh, Bill Clinton and Al Gore. We are the only party able to face the future realistically. We're the only party with the energy, the commitment uh, to represent all Americans, not just those contributing in Buddhist temples or you know, uh, embassies or, or union uh, headquarters. It is the power of ideas that will realign American politics and will make us the permanent majority, and there are certain basic truths that we as Republicans subscribe to, and I'll go through them just briefly. One, we are the party that respects the individual regardless of race, age, gender, or color. <laughs> Two, we're the only party that recognizes big government is an impediment to, is an impediment to national progress. We are the party that will free the working men and women of America from higher taxes, burdensome regulations, and outdated social programs. And three, we are the only party that dares to dream about a brighter future because we're not tied to a failed past. We must privatize the economy. We must allow children to attend schools of their choice. And we must permit all of us to keep more of our hard-earned dollars. These are three truths that are the backbone of our message, not only to black America, Hispanic America, Asian America, but this is, our back, this is our message to all America. This is our challenge to communicate this message, the message that we, what we're all about, and counter the attacks and lies and deceits, demagogueries that our opponents continue to plant throughout communities and throughout the country. As a young man, I'm optimistic about our future. The minorities across the country, they're not living in a vacuum. They will see which party serves their best interest and they'll, if we can just provide them with the truth, rather. Every day it becomes clearer and clearer that Democrats are the party of fear and division. They have no ideas, they have no agenda, just protecting the status quo. This is not some political game we're playing. It's about our future and the future of this country. We must find better ways to communicate our message to every community in this country. We know that our cause is right for all Americans, and let's work together to get that message out to, to every state, every age, and every race. If we do that, we'll be the permanent majority. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I want to say, first of all, that the Independent Women's Forum is a nonpartisan national women's policy organization which represents the vast majority of American women who believe in common sense, practical
practicality, equal opportunity, and maximum options for men, women, and families. This means that we believe the market works best to solve problems, much better certainly than the federal government. Our, <laughs> we may be the only women's group that'll say that. Our group takes no position on abortion, for or against, since we've noted that so many groups do such a wonderful job at representing both sides of that issue <laughs> that it stops all further conversation. So when we formed our group, we decided that we would just move on to other issues which we feel are of interest. <laughs> um, our first question was, what can we do and how can we make life easier and better for the majority of American women? So I came here today to give you just a few little uh, suggestions of things that we've learned in the past three years while we've tried to cut an area, a area, uh, to talk about women's issues. First of all, we've done no polling at all to discover what these issues might be. We feel that leading is more important than polling and that we would just pick our issues and the other side could eat our dust. <laughs> Which is literally what's been happening. Um, we started gathering women around us who could write articles, who could articulate issues, who could go on TV, and who were not afraid to have a fight. Most of us had never joined women's groups before in fact, we thought women's groups were really kind of silly. But we came up against politics and decided that for the past 30 years, when we looked at the field, the other team had always had somebody on the field. And we, because of our principles, never did. So the past 30 years have seen, has seen the growth of women's organizations from the other side who are brilliant at articulating their nasty, bitter, gnarled, spinsterish kind of message. We like men. In fact, one of our buttons says, sex is better than gender. <laughs> we, we, we sent that button to the Beijing Women's Conference, and we heard about it afterward. <laughs> um, so I'd like to just give you a little summation of what happened uh, as a, a culmination of the past 30 years of women's groups, my poster. Thank you. This poster says, most politicians still think women should be seen and not heard. In the last election, this is referring to the 104th Congress, in the last election, 54 million women agreed. And you see, her mouth is morphed away. Women were not able to speak. Notwithstanding the fact that women voted 55% to 45% for Republicans. This ad was put in every women's magazine multiple times in the United States. This ad was funded by Anheuser-Busch with a $500,000 grant. Anheuser-Busch is in Congressman Gephardt's district. Thank you. <clears throat> this poster was signed on not only by NOW and NARO and the National Women's Political Caucus. The American Association of University Women signed on for it. So did the YWCA. So did the Girl Scouts. So did the League of Women Voters. I tell you this because I want you to understand that the other side has created an empire. There are not just a few women's groups out there. It is an empire. 
it is funded by millions of dollars, millions, shall we say, of your tax dollars. They have created a separate force within the Democratic Party. Christina Summers went to the Democratic Convention in Chicago and came back and told us that at the same time the convention was going on on the Democratic Convention floor, there was another convention going on underneath, which was for the women. Something that I know we couldn't possibly imagine, but that's true. This administration has something called the Interagency Task Force. It's chaired by Mrs. Clinton. It meets monthly. Every agency in the government sends a representative. They are monitoring how they are implementing the Beijing Platform for Action. There have been no oversight hearings. Now, the Democrats for 30 years have proceeded to define women, blacks, Hispanics, Asians as interest groups, just as Ken said as if all the individuals within these categories think the same and have the same interests. For Republicans, this leads to a paradox, because if you have an outreach program to interest groups based on sex, race, national origin, or for goodness sakes, the sex of one's mate, aren't you proving that the party is at its core a white male bastion? Men, women, blacks, Hispanics, whites, etc., 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 share interests as Americans. Ward Connerly was here last year. I heard him here. And he talks all the time about getting out of the box. I believe that affirmative action has maybe five more years of life left. Why? Because kids are born now that can't check off one box. Why don't we have a slogan? Why don't we have a campaign? Get out of the box. We can't be in these boxes. We ought to tell people, stop checking the box. It's easy. <laughs> the second thing we learned over the past three years is that Republicans should just accept the fact that there are some people who will never, ever vote for them. Never. To some people, conservatives come in only two flavors, bad and worse. Accept it. These people won't vote for you. They will never vote for you. Not even if you dangle two-day maternity stays, or three-day mastectomy stays, or four days for any other plumbing situation that you can imagine. <laughs> but by appealing to those women, what you will do is that you will have sold out your own women who are voting for you because of your principles. You will have thrown all your principles out. And those conservative women are concerned that you keep enough of your principles so as you can keep the barbarians outside the gate. If you sell those, if you sell those principles down to try and get a few Democratic votes, which you will not get, what will you get in return? This is called the Packwood strategy. Remember him? Another important thing that we learned is to reconsider how you conceptualize yourself. If you think of yourself as conservatives, staid, um, backwards-thinking conservatives, you will die. Conservatives are the progressives. Liberals are the defenders of the establishment. They are statistically challenged, and we should challenge them more. They misrepresent the facts. They do this about affirmative racism. They do it about education. They do it about crime, about women's health, about women in the military, and about women's economic status. They take things out of context, and they draw phony pictures. And they do this to build support for their legislation, 
which funds their distortions. And so the, the circle goes round and round because rarely are they challenged successfully. In order to change the realignment for a majority that Joe talks about, these challenges need to occur forcefully, regularly, and with constant forward motion. Once you take the lid off, their mushroom fades. It dies, cannot take sunshine. How do we do this? I have a few suggestions. The first thing to do is to put a human face on some of these issues. Think about the people that you know. Most women are busy. They don't have time to hear all the details, and most don't pay attention at the federal level. Many people filter everything they hear through the noise of their daily lives, shopping, family, commuting, daycare, friends. They want to hear a rational person talk substantively about solutions to problems, to deliver for their kids. Clinton gives us a great example. Tonight, he told us during the campaign, I'm going to tell you how every child is going to learn to read by the third grade. Never mind that we all used to learn to read in the first grade. Now they're going to learn to read by the third grade. He did not say, I'm going to tell you how terrible the schools are, and it is only 40% of third graders who can read at the third grade level. He knows it's terrible. We know it's terrible. But he's just told us how he's going to fix it. Our politicians must connect the dots between daily life and legislation, between daily life and government. Airbags is a perfect example. Every automobile costs $2,000 more than it needs to because airbags are required. Small-framed women must have airbags in their car, even though if the airbags explode, they will be hurt, most likely. Also, their children will be hurt. This is one-size-fits-all federal government at its worst. We cannot deactivate them, and we cannot buy a car without them. It's a perfect example of how the federal government affects a woman in her daily life. The government has taken certain actions about her life, and we need to say to her that whether you want to or not, whether you are going to vote or not, the federal government will take action which affects you. We must point out how government controls a woman's choices, some of their favorite words, confines her daily life, and makes it harder for her to raise her children. This must be an ongoing, constant effort, constant effort, much like Ken said. This cannot start six months or four weeks before an election. They have to be educated. Nobody has taught them how government works. Now that the media has created soccer moms, we should pull that lever. And boy, did Clinton give us an opportunity. I know that Mr. Nicholson has told you about the Working Families Flexibility Act, HR1. HR1 is an opportunity for us to do a little political jujitsu. Mr. Clinton supported HR1 during the campaign and during his State of the Union address. It's passed the House. I hope it passes the Senate. But we should be talking about it. Everybody back home should be talking about it. This is a number one issue for women, flexibility. Do I have to work this week, or can I work a few hours less and take the money? We did a poll, actually, just after the election by the polling company, and we asked the question, how willing are you to give up pay at work in exchange for more personal time? 55% of all respondents replied that this is an option that they prefer. The most enthusiastic age group were workers aged 18 to 29. 73% and 68% of men in this group answered the question positively. There are common sense Americans out there. We ought to begin to appeal to them. Another great realignment issue 
is AIDS. I'm sure no one's talked to you about AIDS as an issue. But Congressman Tom Coburn and Senator Don Nichols have sponsored the HIV Prevention Act of 1997. Today, AIDS is the number one killer of African-American women, the number one killer of African-American women between the ages of 22 and 45. 60% of children who are younger than 13 who have AIDS are African-American. The coalition of women, minorities, mainstream minority, gay lobbies has permitted AIDS to be treated as a political civil rights issue and not as a public health issue. It is on the verge of becoming catastrophic for minority communities. It is so catastrophic that even the American Medical Association has just announced its support for this HIV bill of 1997. Already during this break, two Democrats who were original co-sponsors have ducked and have taken their name off the list of co-sponsors. So threatened are they by the gay community. They are afraid of the backlash, both from the gays and from the women's groups. When we challenge the women's groups, particularly on one facet of this bill, which would require that rape victims have a right to know if their rapists are HIV positive. I know most people think that you would have that right, but you don't. The rapist has an absolute right to privacy. The victim does not have a right to know. This is part of the bill. We go to women's groups, mainstream women's groups, and we ask them to defend that decision. Violence against women, right? We are the Independent Women's Forum is the only women's group that's in favor of this bill. So I would give this to you as an issue that can be used to split a coalition on the other side and that we can use to build a coalition on our side. I'm sure there are many other issues of that kind, and I look forward to working with you on them in the future. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich, and this is Newt's World. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human-moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today.
Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learn something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.